Christchurch, New Malden, 2nd of February 2020, 6.30 service. Alex Fry speaking in the series, Titles for Jesus, Christ. Amen. Well, when we do pray, or read the Bible, or listen to sermons, I wonder what images come into our heads when we think about the person of Jesus. There are all kinds of names used by Christians around the world and throughout time for him. There's Lord, Yeshua, the Word, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Lamb of God, the Way, the Truth, the Life, to list only a few. And the Bible talks about our relationship with Jesus in quite different ways as well. He is our friend and our brother, but he's also our king, our saviour and creator. And different churches have thought about Jesus in quite different ways too. Up on the screen we have an icon from the Russian Orthodox Church. It depicts Jesus wearing priestly robes, highlighting his role as high priest, mediating between us and God the Father. Some evangelicals have historically forbidden any pictures of God in church for fear of worshipping graven images. And if we take a look around us this evening, we'll see visual representations of Jesus limited to our stained glass windows, which depict him as the good shepherd, the light of the world, and as the risen saviour. But Jesus, more often than not, has been described with a single word. This word accompanies him the most in the Bible, in church history, and in our culture. And that word is Christ. It occurs well over 400 times in the New Testament. And another word for Christ is Messiah, which occurs upwards of 70 times. And so, as we start our new series on Jesus' titles, it's safe to assume that they're worth understanding. But then that leaves us with the question of what it means to refer to Jesus as Christ and as Messiah. As always, context is important. And I've spoken about this in the past, so I won't go over what will be old ground for some. But it is worth just reiterating that in Jesus' time, the Jewish people, living under Roman oppression, were anticipating a Messiah who would overthrow their oppressors. Their awaited Messiah, the Anointed One, would be their Saviour. And this had been promised time and again throughout the Old Testament. God would send someone to liberate his people from the chaos of this world and the tribulations that it can bring, not least in the political sphere. But there was no single understanding of how this would happen. And before Jesus came onto the scene, there were a number of self-professed messiahs who came and went, none of them being successful. Yet Jesus' followers came to believe that he was the long-awaited Christ. And in a number of ways, Jesus fitted 
this Messiah mold. He healed people in God's name. And he preached about a new world order, the coming of God's kingdom, about salvation and redemption. In Luke 4, he even preached in the synagogue, reading out a passage from Isaiah about the coming Messiah, claiming that he is the anointed one. As Peter says in our passage this evening, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, Messiah. The words that he spoke and the works that Jesus performed in his earthly ministry caused some of those around him to believe that he was the Christ. Surely, after all, only the Messiah would be able to do these things. But this is also where the parallels between expectation and reality stop. Jesus failed to live up to the expectation of Israel's Messiah in a significant way. Far from overcoming Roman rule, he was killed under Pontius Pilate. And that was never part of the plan, as far as anyone could tell from reading the Jewish scriptures. And it was at this point that the idea of Jesus being Messiah fell apart for his followers. After Jesus was crucified, the hope that had been put in him as the key to freedom had been lost. It would seem that he was just another failure, another self-appointed fake. But then something unexpected happened. Just three days after Jesus' crucifixion, his family and friends were confronted with an empty tomb. If Jesus' death had undermined any idea of him being the Messiah, his resurrection had restored people's faith that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Christ. But this event fundamentally changed how Jesus' followers understood exactly who the Messiah was and what he'd come to accomplish. Now, we can't do justice to this in a single sermon, but we can start to unpack some of the main implications of Jesus' status as the Christ. I think the best way to understand this is to think of Jesus' role as Messiah as a jigsaw puzzle. There are lots of different pieces, and the more of them we put down and connect, the more of the overall picture we see. And tonight we'll be exploring three of these puzzle pieces. Our passage shows us that there are three things about Jesus's messiahship that became apparent to the disciples in light of his resurrection. To be Christ is to be king. To be Christ is to be for all 
And to be Christ is to be Lord. So let's unpack these together. Acts 2 shows us that Jesus' followers went back to the Old Testament and noticed passages about the Messiah that they'd previously missed. And so they reinterpreted much of their scripture in light of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And it's this reinterpretation of scripture that we need to explore if we're to understand what it means for Jesus to be Christ. In this evening's passage, Peter is addressing the crowd at Pentecost after the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples, empowering them to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus and what that means for people's lives. His words inform us that to be Christ is to be king. Let's look at verse 31. Peter is speaking about the Old Testament king, David. And referring to Psalm 16, Peter says he, that's David, was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. In this psalm, David is talking about his descendant, the person who will become king, the one who will be placed on David's throne. But Peter's words here also reveal that David's descendant would be raised from the dead and that he would be the Messiah, combining the role of the coming king with the future Christ. And of course, Peter then says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, leaving us in no doubt that this Messiah King is Jesus. So to be Christ is to be King, King over God's people. But what does it mean for Jesus to be a King in this sense? Well, as I did some reading, I found that in the Old Testament, the role of the king was to ensure that God's people remained in relationship with their God. And they did this by ensuring that the covenant was kept between God and his people, that they acknowledged the rule of God in their lives by obeying his commands, repenting of their sin, and in doing so, creating a loving, just, and righteous society. And in Acts 2, we see that Jesus fulfills this kingly function, but in a rather different way. He does so by sending the Holy Spirit to his disciples. A little before tonight's passage, the Spirit fills the disciples, and Peter clearly understands this to be the work of Jesus. He says, God has raised this Jesus to life. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Peter is saying that when Jesus rose from the dead and went to be with God the Father 
he gave the Holy Spirit to his disciples. It is they who are speaking because the Spirit has been poured out on them. And it is because Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us, his followers, that enables us to have a relationship with God. Paul puts it in a helpful way in Romans 8. He says, The Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. You see, by having the Holy Spirit dwell in us as believers, we have a deeply intimate relationship with God that enables him to call us his children, and well, we can call him our Father. The word Abba, after all, means Dad. And Paul goes on to explain that by being brought into God's family and having God live in us, we are guaranteed eternal life with God when our mortal lives come to an end. You see, God, by definition, is eternal. And by him living in us, we too become eternal. This salvation was new. Before Jesus, the Holy Spirit only dwelt in a select few, usually the king and the prophets. But the Messiah King shares his spirit with those who follow him. So Christ as King ensures that we can be in relationship with God, not simply by our obedience to the covenant, but by giving us God's spirit. That doesn't mean we can do as we please, but I'll talk a bit more about that later. And not only is Christ king, Christ is a Messiah for all. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. In other words, the Holy Spirit has inspired Peter to speak and he is the vehicle that Jesus uses to teach Peter about himself. But why? God's Spirit has a particular role to play in the book of Acts. He equips Jesus' disciples to continue the work that Jesus started. In fact, at the beginning of Acts, Luke says, that he records what Jesus continued to do and teach after his resurrection and ascension to be with the Father. Which begs the question, what did Jesus say and do in his life on earth? And we've already answered that question tonight. He demonstrated that he is the Messiah, the Christ, through his miracles and through what he taught about himself. And now, it is the role of believers to continue to make this known, because far from being the saviour of Israel alone, he is the saviour for all humanity. 
Throughout the book of Acts, Jesus' disciples are led by God's Spirit to make known his ability to save others all over the world. One way of doing this is obviously evangelism. That's what we see in tonight's passage. And it's something we're called to engage with as Christians. But it's not the only way to do this work. Throughout the book of Acts, Jesus' messiahship is evidenced through all the works of the Holy Spirit done by believers. After all, Jesus is the one who sends the Spirit, and so all the works of the Holy Spirit are ultimately the works of Jesus. And we see his followers proclaiming the gospel, but we also see them speaking in tongues, offering physical healing, and praying for others. And these acts witness to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, because through them, God brings about his redeeming purpose for humanity. Countless lives are changed as we read on in Acts, as people come to realize for themselves that Jesus is the Christ. In Acts 3, for example, Peter heals someone who can't walk. And in Acts 20, Paul raises someone from the dead because they'd fallen asleep during one of his sermons and fallen out a third story window. But others simply came to realize that Jesus rose from the dead and so believed that God had made a way to himself, the source of all life. In doing so, they received the Holy Spirit and entered into that deeply intimate relationship, becoming children of God, and so received the promise of eternal life. So to be Christ is to be for all. And to be Christ is also to be Lord. The Roman emperor was referred to as both Lord and Saviour, nodding to the divine status and authority that was given to him. Yet what does Peter go on to say towards the end of our passage? He quotes another psalm written by David, this time Psalm 110. Peter says, For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Psalm 110 is also being reinterpreted in light of Jesus' life, death and resurrection. The first Lord being spoken of in this psalm is God, who was often referred to as Lord in the Old Testament. But if we look carefully at this passage, we see that the second Lord is sat at the right hand of God. Clearly then, this second Lord is Jesus, who Peter says has been exalted to the right hand of God just a few verses earlier. And this is both a politically charged 
and a theologically charged statement. It's politically charged because Peter is saying that after rising from the dead, the Messiah is Lord, not Caesar. Jesus is worthy of worship, not the emperor. And it is theologically charged because it means that the Messiah is not simply a saviour sent by God. Rather, the Messiah is God. He is the Lord of the Old Testament. In other words, divine status is not to be reserved for the Roman Emperor. Instead, it is for God alone who came in the form of Jesus Christ. And this would have been a very dangerous claim to make because it undermined the authority of the emperor. After all, why would someone obey Caesar when God was not only Lord, but rose from the dead and offered eternal life to all? This wasn't something that the emperor could offer after all. And because this belief was such a threat to Rome, it was punishable by death. And sadly, many Christians died for this belief and their subsequent refusal to bow the knee to Caesar. Yet their conviction that Jesus is the Messiah overruled the inevitable temptation to submit to the Lordship of Caesar. It's hard to imagine the strength of this conviction if we've never had to choose between accepting the Lordship of Christ and our personal safety. But I do think it serves as a challenge to us. It can prompt us to consider how we respond to the fact that Jesus is both Lord and Messiah here in the 21st century UK. So far, we've explored the teaching that to be Christ is to be king, to be for all, and to be Lord. But how does that translate into our lives? And I have three broad suggestions based on these truths that I'd encourage you to prayerfully make your own. First, Acts 2 teaches us that to be Christ is to be king. Jesus uses his kingship to connect us with God and to teach us about himself. Unlike previous kings, he gifts us the Holy Spirit. We have God's Spirit in us, the Spirit who can and does help us understand God better. Perhaps it's worth us all asking God to draw us even closer to himself by giving us a deeper knowledge of who he is. As we go about our daily lives, God does reveal more of himself to us if we ask. And it is because of this sense of intimacy with our creator that we find greater fulfillment in life because by knowing him more, our lives take on deeper meaning, direction, and purpose. God is infinite, 
and so we can always know him more. Second, our passage also teaches us that to be Christ is to be for all. And this has implications for Christians. We're called to declare that the Messiah has come and offers eternal life to all. And the church as a collective is called to do that in different ways. Last week, Nathan helpfully spoke on a biblical vision of evangelism. And a few weeks ago, Stephen gave us a useful insight into the diverse practices of different Christian churches, some of which are also found in Acts. We may already be doing a number of these things, and in that, God will be glorified as the Messiah. But sometimes it's helpful to be refreshed by reminding ourselves of why we do these things and deepening our understanding of why we do them. Do we have a clear and deep understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ and what he has to offer the world through us? And if we do, are there any other areas in life we hadn't previously thought of where God might be asking us to proclaim his messiahship in word or in action? And third, we're not just called to declare the messiahship of Jesus. We're also challenged to live out the implications of his lordship in our lives, even when it's difficult. The world around us has many good and godly things in it, but there are also things that are incompatible with the Christian faith. Are we able to identify areas of our lives where we haven't lived as if Jesus is Lord? We may well align ourselves with things that stand in opposition to the Lordship of Christ. It's inevitable as humans. But God has given us his spirit so that we can live out that intimate relationship with him. He is not a Lord who seeks to intimidate, threaten or coerce his people into obedience. He wants to have a relationship with us without the ungodly clutter of this world getting in the way. Are there areas of our lives that, with God's help, we need to reconcile with Christ's Lordship and in doing so, be renewed in the joy that intimacy with him brings? Perhaps we can have just a moment or two of quiet reflection as we consider these things. <laughs> 